Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. One day, on a German train, an American couple, Almer and Jean Keln, met a teenage boy, Christian Gerhardtsreiter. Despite a slight language barrier, the couple and the teen got along well, and before they parted ways, they exchanged information. The Kelns told him that if he was ever in the U.S., he should look them up. Little did they know that this invitation would open the door to almost 40 years of crime on Christian's part. Christian Karl Gerhardtsreiter was born in Bavaria, Germany, on February 21, 1961. His father Simon was a house painter and an amateur artist, and his mother Ermgard was a seamstress. They weren't rich, but they had a good life in their resort town near the Bavarian Alps. Christian was a bit of a misfit, one neighbor calling him a short, skinny, fantasy-obsessed boy, and a family friend saying that he was always taking on different personas for fun. He had a brother, Alexander, but due to Christian's lifelong antics, not much is publicly known about Alexander. Christian grew up fascinated by the United States, and that's perhaps why he took to the Kelns so quickly. When the Kelns told him to visit them if he was ever in the U.S., they were probably saying this to be polite, or at the very least, never expecting anything to come of it. They were wrong. In the summer of 1979, a year after they'd bet him on the train, Christian put their names on a visa so he could get into America. He didn't just use their name, though. He actually turned up on their doorstep in Meriden, Connecticut. No letter, no phone call, just expecting the Kelns to have a place for him. You'll soon see that this kind of entitlement is par for the course with him. While living with the Kelns for a few weeks, Christian put an ad in the paper that said he was a German exchange student looking to finish his high school career in an American high school and needed some housing, preferably free. When the Savios family of Berlin, Connecticut offered to house him, Christian introduced himself as Christopher Gerhardt's writer. That's his last name split into two. Christian's going to have a lot of different names throughout this episode, but we're going to call him Chris, since that was one name he used over and over. Chris was accepted at Berlin High School for his senior year. His goal was to practice his English, lose his German accent, and find a way to permanently live in the U.S. He told the Savioses that he came from a wealthy German family, and he certainly acted like it. He complained about sleeping, for free, on their couch, expected to be served breakfast every morning, and for whatever clothes he wanted to wear that day to be clean. His style, by the way, was described to Vanity Fair thus. Tight European clothing, long hair, and white sunglasses. It was clear that Chris was desperate to appear rich. He studied closely the character of Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island. Chris never graduated from Berlin High School. He had slowly been working the nerves of the Savioses, adults and children alike, and the final straw came one winter afternoon when the Savioses' young daughter wanted to come inside and Chris refused to unlock the door and let her in. He was kicked out. Somehow Chris made it to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he used the name Chris Kenneth Gerhardt to get accepted into the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee as a film student. For some strange reason, Chris called the Savioses and told them that he planned to vote for Reagan in 1980. Mr. Savios pointed out that Chris couldn't vote as he wasn't a citizen. Chris said confidently, I will be by then. And he was. Soon after, he married a woman he barely knew at the courthouse with a film classmate as a witness. The second he got his green card, he divorced the woman and left Milwaukee for Los Angeles. 
When he got there, he called up Ed Savios, the son of the Savios family, who lived there and worked as a screenwriter. Chris told Ed that he too was going into film. Could he stay with Ed? Smartly, Ed said, hell no. So Chris found his way to a suburb of San Marino, 18 miles outside of Los Angeles. His new name? Christopher Chichester, the aristocratic-sounding surname lifted from one of his teachers at Berlin High. Chris's place outside San Marino wasn't in the nicest part of town, but yet again he was living rent-free, this time in the guest house of a middle-aged woman, who lived in the main house, named Ruth Sohus. Ruth was known as a reclusive alcoholic and didn't pay much attention to Chris, which worked perfectly for him. Chris quickly became well-known in the community. He was a regular at all the local social clubs, patronized the library nearly every day, and greeted every woman by kissing their hand. Unable to afford much food, he used his connections and slick appearance to either be invited to a meal or to slip into country clubs and weddings to take advantage of lunch buffets. No one questioned him because Chris looked and acted the part. In addition to his preppy clothes, he had excellent manners and a, quote, aristocratic accent. He had larger-than-average calling cards, on which was displayed the Chichester family crest and motto, firm and foy, meaning firm and faith. He told people he was descended from English royalty. When asked who, in particular, he named Sir Francis Chichester, who sailed his ship around the world. A few days after he told people this, he turned up with a dummy newspaper from a nearby town that talked about Sir Francis and mentioned that Christopher Chichester, quote, lived nearby. Chris, as you've probably figured out, was a bullshitter. He could make conversation about anything and sound like he knew what he was talking about. He told people that he had a public access show, true, and that he went to USC with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, not true. These stories charmed the parents and daughters of San Marino. Well, all but one. Carol Campbell, who went on one date with Chris, told her parents that Chris was a creepy liar and she didn't believe a word that came out of his mouth. In early 1985, Chris was getting antsy. He wanted to get out of San Marino, but wasn't sure how to do it. And he was concerned that his host Ruth's son, John, was on to him. John was a 20-something computer geek who worked for Jet Propulsion Labs. People often commented on how odd a match John was with his wife Linda, who was a good-looking bookstore clerk and artist. And now the couple had moved in with Ruth. Ruth didn't care what Chris did, but John and Linda might suspect something was up. Around this time, friends of the couple got calls from them saying they'd been offered an exciting, important government job, but it was top secret and they couldn't tell their friends any more than that. John and Linda promised to return for their things in two weeks. Eight weeks later, they hadn't been heard from save for two postcards allegedly sent to Ruth from Paris. A quote-unquote source called Ruth every now and then to tell her the couple was fine, but when Ruth finally figured out that this source was Chris, five months after the couple had left, she filed a missing persons report. But by the time she filed it, Chris was long gone. Chris had liked living on the East Coast, so that's where he went after he stole John Sohus's truck. He drove it cross-country and laid low for a few years, during which time no one knows where he was or what he did. The next time people heard from him, it was 1988. His name was Chris Crow, and he was trying to sell a pickup truck in Greenwich, Connecticut. A man reported this to the police because Chris didn't have any paperwork in his name. Despite the different surname, the police quickly figured out that Chris Chichester and Chris Crow were the same person. 
But Chris evaded the police again and slipped into the country club life of the Connecticut suburbs. Just like in San Marino, he fit right in with his manners and his custom-made monogrammed shirts. He told people that in LA, he had produced remakes of Hitchcock films. There was actually a Chris Chichester who did this, but he was much older, and our Chris would have been a child when the other Chris was doing the remakes. Using his charm, Chris got an interview with a famous venture capitalist, Stan Phelps, and was hired as a tech for the Phelps company. His co-workers detested him. They told Vanity Fair that Chris talked about himself nonstop, showing everyone pictures of the mansion he'd grown up in. He also clearly had no idea how to do the job for which he'd been hired. If he had just kept his head down, he might have lasted longer at that job. But someone at the company was annoyed enough with him that they ran his social security number. It came back registered to David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer. He was fired. Next, he got a job on Wall Street at a security company where he earned $150,000 a year. Again, his co-workers were less than impressed. Soon, his lack of actual skill caught up with him and he was fired. This was 1989, and Chris again disappeared for a few years. When he resurfaced, living in an apartment on New York's 57th Street, he called himself Clark Rockefeller. He was doing okay for money, somehow he had over $100,000, and while some say he saved it, others think he got it by gambling. He started to gain a reputation in New York in 1992 or 93. He knew where to link up with the rich and famous of New York, St. Thomas's Church on Fifth Avenue. He had a few marks of status, a collection of modern art, nice clothes, a fancy dog named Yates, and of course, an established name. He told people that his parents had been killed in a car accident in Connecticut when he was a Harvard-bound 16-year-old, which is why he could never go back there. His mother had been child star Ann Carter, and his father had been of the Percy Rockefeller branch of the famous family. Chris probably chose this branch because the Percy family wasn't as rich or well-known as the John D. part of the family. He was described by one churchgoer as properly eccentric. Telling everyone his safety was constantly in question, he carried around and talked into a walkie-talkie at all times, which, he said, was linked to his personal security team. He was very private and paranoid, to the point where no one ever expected a straight answer from him. Choosing to integrate himself into the upper crust as opposed to, say, a blue-collar community was a smart move. While the millionaire you're talking to might not recognize you, they're never going to call your bluff, because if you turn out to be telling the truth, they will have offended some important people. Whereas people in a less ritzy community would have no problem declaring you a liar and then calling the town gossip to let everyone else know. Or at the very least, they might ask around to see if anyone knows you. Chris's neighbor, Martha Henry, to whom he told the tragic story of his parents' deaths, said it struck her as a tad over the top, but quote, you just think, oh well, he's a Rockefeller. It was at St. Thomas's church that Chris met his future wife, Sandra Mills Boss. He actually met her twin sister, Julie, first, but as Julie was engaged, Chris turned his attention to Sandra. Sandra was a very impressive person, a Stanford graduate, a merit scholar, and a current student of Harvard Business School. Her father was a Boeing engineer, and Sandra knew her way around a business plan. Chris moved quickly. Just a day or two after he met Sandra, he threw a clue-themed a clue -themed party for Sandra at his apartment. He was Professor Plum, and Sandra was Miss Scarlet. The two had a great time together. They were equally smart, and Sandra appreciated Chris's wit, calling him the brightest man I've ever met. 
Chris further impressed her by knowing all of the obscure 20th century authors Sandra loved and speaking several languages fluently, including Klingon, because Chris is nothing if not extra. Since they were getting close so quickly, Chris had to think up a story to explain why he, a Rockefeller, didn't have millions of dollars at his disposal. He told Sandra that his father's fortune had all been used on a lawsuit. Even so, Chris joined Sandra in her philanthropy. They married quickly and had the ceremony in Nantucket. None of the Rockefellers showed up. Obviously, Chris's dead parents couldn't come, but he explained to Sandra that he had invited the Rockefeller clan, but then there was a disagreement and he uninvited all of them. Instead, Yates served as best dog. But how did Chris, or Clark Rockefeller, get married when he didn't have any ID and wasn't who he said he was? He handled it masterfully. Sandra signed all the legal papers for their marriage, then gave them to Chris to sign and turn in. He never did. He also insisted that they have their wedding at a Quaker meeting house so no one would look into the paperwork. Following their wedding, the couple split their time between New York and Nantucket. Sandra had an impressive job as the youngest ever director at McKinsey and & Company, and Chris lied that he advised third-world countries on their finances. And according to Chris, the only reason Sandra got her impressive job was because of her new last name. Her bosses didn't seem to agree, though. She got promotion after promotion, and as a result, was away from Chris more and more. While she was gone, Chris spent his time walking Yates in Central Park, meeting Broadway producers, writers, and executives who would invite him to fancy parties on their yachts. Around 1998, the marriage started to suffer. Chris was controlling and paranoid, and in 2000, Sandra decided to leave him. He coaxed her back, and when she got pregnant later that year, she decided to stay for good. While Sandra was pregnant, Chris abruptly told her that they had to move. He'd been walking Yates when he witnessed a crime and the police wanted to talk to him. That, of course, couldn't happen, so he insisted that he and Sandra move to New Hampshire. They moved into a wealthy neighborhood where Woodrow Wilson had once lived. Chris threw a housewarming party despite knowing no one in the area. Neighbors showed up, though, and every single one of them hated him. Chris told the people that the Rockefellers lived in New Hampshire because it was halfway between Sandra's job in Boston and Chris's job as a scientist with the Canadian company Jet Propulsions. If you recognize the name of that made-up company, that's because it was the name of the company where John Sohus, the son of Chris's San Marino landlord, had worked. Once settled into New Hampshire, Chris sent a mass email to their friends in New York and Nantucket. First, I must tell you why you haven't heard from me. While in a meeting at the UN the Friday before Labor Day, I stared at some papers a delegate handed to me. I remembered nothing until I woke up at a New York hospital five hours later. The hospital discharged me shortly afterwards, and the doctors told me I suffered from severe exhaustion. The obvious cause, too many 19-hour days. On the advice of my doctor, I have decided to change my lifestyle. My plan? I will take a sabbatical away from my work and go to stay at my cousin's villa in Cape Farad. On May 24, 2001, Sandra and Chris's daughter was born. They named her Ray Starrow Mills Rockefeller. Ray, spelled R-E-I-G-H, by the way, would be Chris's downfall. He was absolutely devoted to his daughter, and it's hard to lead a life of successful, uncaring crime when you've always got one eye on your kid. Later, Thomas Lee, a Boston police superintendent, would tell Vanity Fair that the one real thing in Chris's life was his daughter and his love for her. Everything else was a fraud. Things were calm until Ray, or as Chris called her, Snooks, was five. 
Chris wanted her to be homeschooled, but Sandra said that Ray needed to go to an actual school and make friends. In the end, they moved to Boston, and Ray was enrolled at Southfield School for Girls. At Chris's insistence, Ray used Sandra's last name, not his. The family lived in John Kerry's neighborhood, and Chris told people he'd quit his job at Jet Propulsions to be a stay-at-home dad. When Ray wasn't in school, Chris would read to her for hours and take her out to lunch. When she was in school, Chris would walk her to the bus stop, then go to a local Starbucks and meet up with a group of important lawyers, researchers, and business people. He became the director of the Algonquin Club. One businessman friend said, at a club like that, very Yankee, old boys blue blood, people get a hard-on over names. Remember, Chris was neither a Yankee, an old boy, or a blue blood, but as usual, he played the part convincingly. Soon after starting school in Boston, Ray got in trouble for acting up in class. When Chris refused to discipline her, Sandra had him served with divorce papers. Obviously, this refusal to discipline wasn't the only thing wrong. According to Sandra, Chris would withhold money and food from her, would only heat the part of the house he slept in, and told her that getting a job was beneath a Rockefeller. During their acrimonious divorce, Sandra lived at the Boston Ritz and Chris stayed with a friend. Ray went back and forth. To save face kind of, Chris told people that the reason he was hastily trying to sell his antique cards and artwork was because Sandra had taken all of his money in the divorce, even though the divorce wasn't over yet. To get some ammo, Sandra's father William was looking into Chris, along with a private investigator Sandra had hired. William was sure that Chris was either hiding the Rockefeller money or he was dead broke. William also looked into the claims Chris had made over the years, including that his mother had been actress Ann Carter. Chris had said she died along with his father, but according to the internet, Ann Carter was still alive. Scared that his true identity was going to be found out, Chris gave everything to Sandra as long as she agreed to call off the private investigator. Sandra won custody, with Chris getting three supervised visits a week, and Sandra moved to London, England with Ray. Chris wrote in an email to a friend, I may have a nervous breakdown. To cope with having no family or friends to speak of, Chris tried to impress women as much as he could, which of course just meant lying. Some he told he was a nuclear physicist. Others he told he had constant business trips to China. After his first date with interior designer Roxanne West, Chris texted her incessantly, quote, problem, I cannot get you out of my head. What to do? Ugh. Another text, just gazed at Saturn for the last 10 minutes viewing excellent tonight in Brookline. Wish you could see this. Another text. In a submarine. Crowded. Strange. Thought of you a minute ago. Another text. Sipping strange tropical drinks in Nantucket now. Would love to see you. This coming week, perhaps, go to Central Park and kiss. Sound good? Unquote. I cannot take the secondhand embarrassment. West was understandably put off by this, as well as all the lies she could tell he had told her on their date. This would usually be around the time that Chris disappeared into a new life. But because of Ray, he couldn't. So he did the next best thing. He kidnapped his daughter. On July 27, 2008, Chris paid a driver $3,000 to drive him and Ray to Rhode Island. He warned the driver that a clingy friend might try to get into the car, and to not let that happen under any circumstances. In reality, the friend was Ray's social worker, attending Chris's supervised visit. As Chris carried Ray toward the car, he pushed the social worker out of the way and jumped into the car so fast that Ray hit her head on the doorframe. Before the caseworker finally let go of the door handle, he was dragged several yards as the car drove away. Just minutes after they left, Chris told the driver to stop. 
He and Ray got out, Chris hailed a cab, and they went to Boston Sailing Center. From there, they met a friend of Chris's who agreed to take the two to New York. It wasn't until just after Chris and Ray had gone into Grand Central Station that the friend got the Amber Alert that Ray had been kidnapped. For the next five days, police up and down the East Coast searched for Chris and Ray. While trying to figure out who Clark Rockefeller really was, they found out that he was not in any national database. He had no driver's license. He wasn't on Sandra's tax returns. His phone plan was under a friend's name, and his debit and credit cards were linked to Sandra's bank account because he didn't have one. Special agent Noreen Gleason called a real Rockefeller and asked if they knew a Clark. They said no. Finally, they got prints from a wine glass at a friend's apartment, which led them to Chris's real identity. After putting Chris's picture on TV, tips came in from all over the country, using almost every fake name Chris had ever had. Finally, officers got a call from a Baltimore real estate agent. A man matching Chris's photo had just used $432,000 in cashier's checks to buy a house, and he'd had a little girl with him. He introduced himself as Chip Smith and the girl as Muffy, and he told the realtor that he was a single dad relocating from Chile. He'd also, for some reason, bought a battered catamaran that was floating in a marina just a few minutes walk away. At 2 a.m. following the realtor's call, the police had Chris's new home surrounded, but they were afraid of putting Ray in danger. So instead of ambushing the home, they had the owner of the marina call Chris and tell him that his new boat was sinking. After getting the call, Chris came out of the house, and when one of the plainclothes officers shouted, Hey Clark, and Chris turned around, he was arrested by one group of officers, while a second group entered the home and checked on Ray. When Sandra found out that her daughter was okay, according to a friend, she literally collapsed. She then asked officers who exactly Chris was. That, of course, was an even more complicated answer than she anticipated. At the police station, Chris told the officers that he'd try to answer their questions, but he had amnesia, you see, and it made him have trouble remembering some things. Because of all the tips that had been called in, it wasn't just Ray's kidnapping that Chris was being questioned about. While following up on leads, the FBI had found a 1995 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. The 13-year-old episode reminded officers that the truck Chris had tried to sell in Connecticut in 1998 belonged to a man named John Sohus, the son of Chris's landlord, Ruth Sohus. Around the same time Chris had been trying to sell the truck, human remains had been found in a metal drum on Ruth's property. Neighbors remembered seeing Chris digging up his yard, telling them he had, pl he had plumbing problems, and also asking them how he could dispose of a drum full of chemicals. Investigating the guest house where Chris had lived, Luminol showed traces of blood on the floor. But the Sohu's yard held even more surprises. Years later, workers were readying the yard for an in-ground swimming pool when they dug up three plastic bags of skeletal remains. The police suspected that these were the remains of Linda and John, but it was a task to identify John because he had been adopted, and they didn't know who his birth family was. In 2011, John's biological family was finally found, and the remains in both the drum and the bags were identified as John's. There has never been a trace found of Linda. It's speculated that perhaps Chris killed John to get to his glamorous wife, and then he either killed her without a trace when she turned him down, or she was living her life somewhere without John. Since Linda's family never heard from her after she and John left for their government job, though, it's likely that Linda didn't survive her last encounter with Chris. 
By the time Chris went to trial in 2013, he was facing charges of not only kidnapping, but of first-degree murder. At first, Chris had a lawyer, who argued that it wasn't illegal or even odd for his client to have changed his name. Many immigrants anglicized their names to better assimilate with American society. But of course, most immigrants don't change their name five times. Not long into the trial, Chris fired his lawyer and represented himself, because of course he did. He pled not guilty and wanted to read what the Boston Globe called a voluminous motion to defend his case, but the judge refused to let him read it. Chris argued that it wasn't just that he wanted to read the statement, the public also wanted to hear it. The judge told him to shut his lipless Mitch McConnell-looking mouth. After just six hours, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod, where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.